Welcome to On The Rise Podcast with your hosts, Sam and Evan. Hello and welcome to On The Rise Podcast. My name is Sam Donsick alongside my co-host, Evan Brown. Before we get started, On The Rise Podcast is now streaming on MidtownRadio.ca, Saturdays at 10 a.m. Our topics for today's episode are the MLB's international players returning to the United States, the Cowboys offering a contract to Dak Prescott, uh, the Diamondbacks opening up Chase, Chase Field for workouts, uh, the potential new 4th and 15 rule being implemented this season, remembering Jerry Sloan, uh, the Brooklyn Nets looking at a uh, third star next season and have set their sights on Bradley Beal, Take, and finally taking a look at what a 24-team playoff format would mean in the NHL. Let's begin in the NFL regarding the Cowboys and Dak Prescott. So Dak Prescott has reportedly been offered a five-year, $175 million deal. Um, So that would give him about $35 million annually. Now, reportedly, he has turned it down and says he wants $45 million in his last year. Now, this would only be if this is a five-year deal. So the first four, he's working maybe 35 to $38 million. And then that last year, he's making $45 million a year. And I think the reason why he wants to do that potentially is when he wants to make the money. And hopefully by then, after those four years later, that fifth year, he's a top elite quarterback and he's worth $45 million. But another thing is the cap is going up increasingly slowly year by year. And I think most top end or most elite quarterbacks like Russell Wilson, Patrick Holmes, Lamar Jackson, will be making that kind of money that uh, in that fifth, like in five years from now, that $45 million. What are your thoughts in there? As a Cowboys fan as well, I just want to get your thoughts. But As a Cowboys fan, I was very intrigued by this news. I wasn't really expecting it. Obviously, there have been contract talks going on for a while now, uh, but I hadn't really – it just kind of came up as a surprise to me that this came up now. But uh, I really I really think that $175 million over five years deal would be uh, a good option for both Cowboys and, uh, the Cowboys and Dak Prescott. I mean – Yes, yeah. Dak doesn't get that financial security that he obviously wants with the $45 million saying, okay, by this year I will be one of the top three quarterbacks in the league per se. Like yeah, he's, he's wanting to make top, top three, top five quarterback money. And he's thinking he's being a smart businessman and saying, okay, by this time the cap will be reaching this. And he's almost setting the market for himself once – that five-year deal is up. Once that five-year deal is up, you're six years from now, he's going to say, okay, this is what the cap should be at. This is what my value should be at. This is what most quarterbacks should be making when they are at the top of their game, when the cap is at this price. And I mean, it's from a business perspective, it's really smart for Dak to say that because it yeah. really, like I said, sets the market for himself. And so next contract, he can say, okay, now that I'm here, I deserve this kind of money going forward because clearly I am, I, I have established myself as a better quarterback in the league. Cause right now he may be about top 10, but he's not top five, top three. He's not where he wants to be. He's not, he feels like he has more potential as a player. And That's considering amazing. he's just, he's just entering his prime years. You can understand where he's coming from saying, okay, he's going to be getting better and better and better as this contract progresses. So for Dak Prescott, it makes sense that he wants 45 mil. Yes, it is a bit expensive, but at the same time, you can see as the cap increases, the amount of money they can afford to pay him would increase. And I think that would also mean uh, going into two years from now, it would he would probably make a little bit less than what he's expected to make just because 
he's expecting it's almost like the um five percent increase on contracts in the nba i think it is something like that but like how the money increases every year as the cap goes up in a sense Mm -hmm. um i think the cowboys if if they are looking to if they're going to come to an agreement and they don't want and the cowboys do not want to give him that 45 million i think the best option for the second best option for dak would be to do a shorter deal in that case because if he does a two-year deal he can establish himself as a top five quarterback or a top seven quarterback because i think i think he's about seven or eight best quarterback in the league right now if you look at some of the names that would be in front of him but I think he wants to be in that top five conversation and I think he can have that potential. So two years from now, he's going to say, okay, I think I can be there. I think I can make a lot more money there. So he takes a bit of a shorter deal for a little bit less money now, but then once he's in his prime, he's established himself as a quarterback, then the Cowboys will be willing him to pay the top dollar. Right? So I think right now I like where the negotiations are heading. I think, it seems like Dak, Dak knows what he's doing on the business side. He is trying to get his, and you can understand that from a business perspective. And the Cowboys are trying to make a deal that makes sense for not only them, but also Dak, because Dak, they want to keep Dak happy, right? So I think right now, I like where the contract talk is going. I do think it's a bit expensive for Dak, but then again, he's being the smart businessman. He wants to make sure that he's getting what he's worth. Uh, and if somehow this kind of setup falls through, I think they definitely go for like a uh, bet on yourself type year, as Fred Van Vliet would say, with a short uh, two-year contract, for instance, yeah. to kind of make sure he could prove himself. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think with this deal, like this offer, that like the contract, the five-year $175 million with $35 million each year, for me, that's what Dak is worth right now. He's worth around $35 million. That's, I think I think you could say – He's roughly worth that. But I think what he wants to do is he wants to be able to, like you said, set the market himself and say, okay, maybe in five years from now, I'm worth $45 million. And I think a lot of other quarterbacks will. But right now, I think, I think yeah, like possibly now, reportedly as well, he, had, he wanted a four-year deal. And the Cowboys want that five-year long, long-term deal. So I think what he said is that reportedly, he said, okay, you can give me that five-year deal, but he wants that $45 million in that last year to then as yeah. well potentially – be maybe that fifth year he really shines and he's and he's about to make that or he's making that 45 million dollars a year that last year he's making yeah. good, or he becomes a cap casualty where they can't afford to pay him because let's say you know Zeke's contract gets up or whatever it is or there might be another player that they need to pay and they they need to keep Dak happy as well so he what he what he wants to do is he might be it's a really smart business move and his agent is doing a great job regards on the business side is that he might become a cap casualty and then maybe he can enter the free agent market as a quarterback that is worth 40 plus million dollars a year and he can sign somewhere else. I'm not saying he doesn't, he definitely, I'd say wants to stay at Cowboy because who doesn't want to play for the Cowboys? Like that's America's team. They're on every, every week they're on prime time. They're um, one of the most beloved teams that, or when I guess a lot of people don't like them, but I think in Texas, well, it's, it's an honor to play for them. So I think he wants to stay there yeah. and he wants to earn money. So I think it's a good move. It's a good offer, but I can understand where he's coming from that 45 million. But the only way he's going to get that is these next few years, he's going to have to prove. And like you said as well, potentially signing a two-year deal saying, okay, I'll sign a two-year deal worth maybe let's say 50 million. So he's, or like, let's say like 70 million or something. So he's making $35 million a year still. And he, he proves himself as a top level quarterback in two years from now, the Cowboys go, okay, you're worth 40 million or you're worth 42 million. 
that's what you're worth. But if he doesn't shine over those next two years, then at least it doesn't hurt the Cowboys. So it's almost not saying I understand the Cowboys want security and they do, they, they do understand the potential in Dak Prescott, but let's say whatever it is for the next two years, he doesn't do as well as this past year or previous years when they um, went 13 and three and he had a great season. His first, I think it was his first season as well. So I can understand with all the logistics. I think it's a good move as of right now. So, yeah. And in the end, in the end, they're going to get a deal done. They, like, he wants to play for the Cowboys no matter what. They franchise tagged him. He's not going anywhere. It's just a matter of time until they find a deal. And like you said, he wants to play in Dallas. Who wouldn't want to play for Dallas? It's an honor to play. Uh, yes, a lot of team, a lot of other fans in the league dislike the Cowboys, but comparing it to other sports, it's like being – a Yankees fan, right? Yankees yeah. are top of the line, but not a lot of people like them. Same thing with being a Leafs or a Habs fan. Same thing with being uh, a Lakers or Celtics fan. Everybody, they, everybody, when they think of that sport, thinks of those teams. And when you think football, the Dallas Cowboys are one of the first teams, no matter how much the rest of the league hates them. It's one, they're one of those teams that come to mind first, right? And they're honestly, I think should, they, yeah. they were valued at, like, this regards business, they were valued at around $4 billion with the B. Exactly. To their exactly. Worth. So they're one of the most wealthiest teams. So they can, Jerry Jones as well, can afford to pay his quarterback probably that money. So uh, yeah. it's, it's going really to see problem. what happens. It's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few months and stuff. Uh, potentially if a deal does get done. I used to the deal has to get done. They're going to sign it. The question is, what are those details of the contract? So I, I think that's, uh, that's where we can leave it as right now. What's going to happen? Moving on over to some other news in the NFL. So a potential 4th and 15 rule uh, is being proposed. This is reportedly from the Philadelphia Eagles, reportedly uh, wanting this. So the way that this works is that if a team, let's say late in the game, needs the score some points they're only down like a touchdown maybe down two and they don't want to onside kick or they they want to they don't want to onside kick so what they can do is from the 25 yard line they can have a fourth and 15 where they have to get to their 40 yard line or beyond their 40 yard line and if they do that they retain possession and then if they don't do that wherever the ball falls dead or wherever the person is tackled that's where the opposing team would uh take possession the question is do you like this as an option instead of the onside kick is it better or worse for teams I personally do like this uh, like this idea that's brought up uh, from the Philadelphia Eagles, and I think a lot of uh, GMs and teams from the league have started to uh, gain this. This rule change has gained some traction because what this kind of does is it takes out a bit of the random chance added into the NFL. Because, like in in the in crunch time, what you want is those proven moments where you could say, "Okay, we are either going to complete it, we're either not going to complete it, we're either going to do." We're, we're either going to give our team a chance to win or we're going to risk it all, right? Yeah. So the, on, the problem with the onside kick has always been we don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know how the ball's going to bounce. You don't know how a team is going to field it, if they aren't going to field it, if they're going to drop it. It's all about that random chance. And that's why a lot of teams don't always resort to the onside kick, and that's why it doesn't work a lot of the times. It, you rarely see completed onside kicks. Yes, it is exciting when it actually does work for the teams, but at the same time, it's almost too random to actually consider it a valuable play, right? And yeah. it, there's not really, like, yes, there, it could be, technically could be called an art to doing the onside kick, but no kicker wants to repeatedly practice, okay, 
in clutch time, I want to be the guy that has to weakly kick the ball to the side and hope that my team can pick it up, right? Yeah. What, what you're looking for is what, – what, what the teams are looking for with this fourth and 15 rule is give them a chance to actually prove that they can try to stay in this game, right? It's almost mm-hmm. – it, it's, it, it's a do-or-die play for the teams, and I think it's a risk a lot of teams would be wanting to take if it is approved. And I think it's a smarter option than the onside kick. If you have trust in your quarterbacks and if you have trust in your deep receivers that they can make a good catch when you have that do or die play, I think a lot of teams are going to resort to this play. And I think it's going to be interesting to see the new strategies teams kind of come up with this, with this rule, because sometimes like regularly you could have a couple downs to say, okay, we'll run the ball close. And then if we have to, we can pass or we can, do different 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 plays but with this you have one shot and you only got one shot and I think that's gonna bring up some interesting plays to try to salvage those fourth and 15s because most of the time on fourth and 15 it's just a punt right so it's gonna it's gonna make teams make good plays and I think it's going to be exciting if this rule is approved for football fans and football teams I would definitely agree. I think one of the biggest thing with the onside kick, like you said as well, it's like you're leaving so much up to chance. And this, I think with this fourth and 15 rule that you have the option to go for it is that you prove to the other team and to the, into the fans as well is that you deserve to be in that game. Cause I think a lot of times, I think there's been a lot of talk last year is that certain teams, whenever it's like, let's say you go into overtime and you lose the game or whatever, and you're like, okay, well, they had a chance to win the regulation. This is your kind of your chance to prove that you deserve to be in that game by converting a fourth and 15, going 15, going 16 yards on a do-or-die play that decides the game, and it creates a lot more anticipation as well because it's like the onside kick, you're kind of just waiting. The guy kicks it 90% of the time. The team recovers it. So now this, it's like you have a lot more options Oh, okay. What kind of plays are they going to run? Are they going to go to a deep ball? Are they just going to do throw a screen pass instead of a, like a wall? So it, it allows more options and for the teams and stuff to develop game plans, and it, it creates a lot more excitement late in the game for fans to watch, which I think is an important thing as well, is to kind of create excitement, excitement constantly in the game. With having this new rule, I think it will do so with that. Yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be a fun play if they if teams can make it work, and I think. It's going to really create a lot of tension in games. Like it's going to be, it's going to be almost like the TSN turning point of games, right? If you could actually pull that, pull that uh, play off. And I think come playoff time, if teams have to resort to this in the dying moments of the game, that'll even add more to the hype, right? Because instead of having a random chance, you can tell, okay, if we have a good enough play, we can give ourselves a better shot to make that comeback in this game or give ourselves a better chance of winning. And yeah, I just think it would be, if it gets approved, I think it's a good move for football. And I mean, yes, we'll still see the occasional onside kick. I think Uh, teams are going to still have it as an option, but I think it'll kind of get rid of, push aside the onside kicks from this generation of random chance. And it would really bring in, the new age of football with do or die plays, the top stars making the top plays. Yeah, it would uh, definitely agree with that. And it's going to be exciting as well to see what happens um, with going forward with the future of this rule and kind of what kind of plays we're going to be uh, seeing out of the games and stuff. Already that wraps up our NFL discussion regarding the Cowboys offering Dak Prescott a five-year $175 million deal and why he has turned it down, as well as a potential 4th and 15 rule for NFL games nearing the dying situations. 
Now moving on over into some MLB news regarding uh, international players. Reportedly, unit, uh, so with MLB international players returning to the United States, they do not have to quarantine for two weeks, but they have to go through these following protocols. A thorough pre-screening questionnaire administered by team physicians. The form would inquire about possible symptoms, ex exposures, and recent whereabouts that could reveal potential risk. Temperature checks a polymerase uh, chain reaction PCR saliva test that would detect the presence of COVID-19 virus and a blood test for the presence of antibodies. So they're not quarantined, but they're going through a lot of these tests. So why don't, I don't understand why they should almost just quarantine for two weeks and do the test to maintain further safety for players. What are your thoughts here on this, not going quarantine, but then going through these protocols? It's, it's definitely, it's definitely an interesting move uh, by the MLB to come out and say that. I mean, uh, realistically, it does make some amount of sense. Like, for the MLB, they're looking to restart games around July 1st. And they're, it's looking like July is kind of like the timeline for a lot of major sports coming back. Uh, and I think with the MLB's target dates, I mean, they do have the time to allow the players to quarantine for two weeks. But... I think their one worry with this whole quarantine for two weeks is that the players won't be able to have uh, the workout facilities available to mm. them to prepare for the season. Because obviously a lot of these players are going to be coming from overseas, coming from who knows where, all over the world, realistically, right? So yeah, uh, they're going to be bringing a lot of players in. And yes, it would be smart to have them quarantine for two weeks, but if they are going to have them double-checked, yes, they're going to have to go through all these protocols, but I think with the whole like quarantine definition for two weeks, I think, yes, they should be distanced from, uh, distanced from people. They obviously should try to stay home as much as possible. But at the same time, I think you have to give them some form of access to workout facilities, training facilities, some way they can at least get back in shape from not playing the game for two months, right? Because not, not everybody has their own home workout facilities where they can stay active and stay ready for the season, right? Get their reps in with the bat, get, uh, make sure their arms are ready because arm safety is huge for the MLB. And if yeah. you're not careful, if you don't have any sort of prepared or warm up or training or anything like that, you can really damage your arm. So I think that's why the MLB isn't really putting a label to quarantine per se. I think they're going to recommend that they have um a lot of time like away from people obviously but i think they don't want to label it as quarantine because they want to make they want to allow them to be able to get back in a game ready shape and be able to get ready for the potential return just so baseball isn't a bunch of injuries and random people playing ra rather than the stars yeah. being stars right so I, I think, yes, it is a bit of a risk not having them fully quarantined for two weeks, but I think with the protocols that are being done and I think with the potential of having not ready players compared to game-ready players, I think that is something the MLB wants to make sure they have available for when sports comes back because, yes, everybody's going to be watching sports when it comes back, but if the quality is down because nobody else is ready to play, then – viewership is going to go down very quickly right so I think it's an interesting move by the MLB but in the end I think it is the right one they're still going to recommend that they quarantine obviously but it shouldn't be necessary for them because not everyone has full-time gyms open right not everybody has a batting cage in their living room so 
No, I would I definitely agree. Because unlike, I think, with other sports, and like with MLB and NA, or no, NBA and NHL, um, is that you don't really have, like, you don't have, like, an NBA. Like, in the NBA players, they might, like, have a home gym or, like, a home court and stuff. They can practice. Not even all NBA players do, but MLB is a little bit harder to have a batting gauge in your backyard and to be able to spot where you can warm up. You're, like, to have your arm warm up as well. So we can talk about it later regarding some teams opening up um, fields and stuff for workouts is that I think it's the right move. It's, like, the thing with quarantine is, that, like, I can, I can understand maybe they don't want to have them quarantined because they need to have um, – players do workouts and stuff and go to the, the facilities because they need to stay in shape and I think they don't want to force people to stay in quarantine but it's the right protocols to go, go through all these um, heavy protocols to test everyone to make sure that everyone's safe um, be, when they come into the country obviously because they don't want from where they're coming from any symptoms and of course anyone with symptoms then would then quarantine themselves or no self-isolate is the proper term self-isolate for two weeks they would isolate from everybody else even like family members as well to keep them safe as well let's keep uh their family members safe of course as any other players safe so i would definitely agree with the protocols that they're with the with what the mlb is taking and i think it's the right thing to do based on the presence of the virus and considering how bad it's getting in the united states with the numbers they're reaching now regarding quarantine for two weeks now most people traveling back like i remember early on would quarantine for two weeks because it's the right thing to do I think they're definitely going to suggest some players, depending on where they're coming from, if they're coming from overseas, maybe where the cases are higher, then I would definitely say quarantine. But if you're coming from a place that doesn't have so many number of cases, maybe the quarantine rule will be lessened on them. I don't know. It's really hard to tell. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see where these players are coming from, what the cases are like. So that's kind of my view on everything that the MLB has put out. Alrighty, moving on in, over to some other MLB news regarding, of course, uh, what you, similar to what we talked about, the Diamondbacks have decided to open up Chase Field, opening up Chase Field for workouts. The Arizona government, uh, governor, Doug Ducey, announced on May 12th that professional sports could resume playing in the state on May 16th. So what are your thoughts on, as we just talked about, but obviously the Diamondbacks opening up Chase Field for workouts. This is the right move in my mind because players do need to work out. They need to stay in shape, especially pitchers with their arms and their shoulders. Um, players getting in practice is a big thing, but what is it going to look like in regards to having workouts? Because this is almost similar to the ML NBA opening up courts. Obviously, the, the fields are a lot bigger, so it's easier to social distance and easier to stay away. But in regards to, okay, how often you clean bats, how often you clean balls and stuff and all that stuff. You know, I think it's interesting to see, but what are the protocols uh, going to be around those workouts? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think – Obviously, they're going to have as they're going to take as much precaution as they can. I know the MLB already said that once they return to action, that there is going to be a lot of different things that are prohibited from the field. There's going to be a lot of different rules put in place to make sure that nothing is spread. Uh, like they're going to limit the possible spread as much as they can. Obviously, they can't take it out because baseball is a potential contact sport, uh, yeah. and like you have to get fit like it's gonna get physical from time to time it's gonna yeah. things are gonna happen right like you can't yeah. you can't take that away from the players no matter what and there's always that risk but they're gonna take as many precautions as possible and with every team that's opening up workouts I think the Diamondbacks are the specifically the most interesting team that is opening up because um not only is Chase Field obvious uh mainly an indoor stadium uh they have um they have a lot more they have better facilities than most teams would and I think they uh they would be able to 
run the social distanced uh, so, so, social distanced out, uh, outlined social distancely outlined work uh, workouts for the players to make sure that nothing is spread. But I think the other most interesting uh, the other thing that's interesting about it is the fact that the MLB has stated that they want to start playing games and that one of the main targets potentially could be Arizona. And I yeah, think as, as the a fact potential that now, area. Uh, yeah, as a potential area for games to start uh, to resume. And I think the fact that Chase Field is opening up now is huge uh, for that step. And the fact that the Arizona governor, as you said, Doug, Ducey, uh, is allowing professional sports to, re- to resume playing without fans because that, I think, is a huge step considering the MLB's already talked about playing in Arizona. And the fact that Arizona now is confirming that they have the green light to play games if they – uh, once it is safe to do so, I think that is, I think that is huge for the league, and I think that's huge news going forward uh, as we start to see uh, the final framework of the return to the MLB season uh, kind of be put into place. Because I think we won't have to wait long for that framework, uh, and I I'm hopeful that sports will be able to come back soon, especially the MLB because they still have a full season to play, right? Other sports, it is just playoffs, but the MLB season, they can't cancel it. Well, they can cancel it this year, but they'd be losing a full season rather than just playoffs. And I feel like that's, that's a bit more true, important yeah. right now. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree. And I think these protocols are the, the necessary protocols and there's certain things that they're banning, which would be including uh, no spitting, no high fives, anything like that. Um, I think it's the right thing to do because with all these protocols that they're taking, they want to have baseball return to um, a safe eight way where they can play and stuff where they can have games. So do we yet have, obviously I'm not sure, but do we have a rough timeline of when MLB could possibly return? Like is it going to be two weeks, three weeks, or is it, is it really unknown at this point? I think it's sounding it's from what I've heard and from what I've seen uh, on just on social media from reporters is that they're targeting uh, July 1st, uh, like most right. leagues are kind of targeting that, uh, that start of July, but obviously we can't tell right now. The workouts probably will, if they are going to return, that would probably be the start of uh, official games. If they do get underway, I think they would have probably workouts probably starting two weeks before that, making sure that the players are getting used to the new protocols and and everything like that. And I mean, I think that would be the most realistic timeline is start of July, which sucks because that's still a month and a half away. Yeah. But I think that is I think that is one of the most realistic timelines we've heard. Uh, and then who knows for the other leagues right now. But I think for the MLB, July 1st is the most realistic date. And I think that is mostly what the consensus is around the league, that July 1st will be the target date for the return of games. Alrighty. That wraps up our MLB discussion regarding the MLB international players returning to the United States and do not have to quarantine, but do have to follow certain protocols and regarding the Diamondbacks opening up Chase Field for workouts. Welcome back to On The Rise Podcast. Already moving on over into uh, some more news regarding the NHL. Uh, Now, obviously, we talked about this last week as well, but now we can understand and start to see some potential matchups of what it look uh, what would look like a 24 team playoff would mean for the team. So Evan, do you want to kind of explain how this sort of works and what would be the dynamics behind this whole thing? Yeah. So what the NHL is kind of set up here is um, a 24 team format that would realistically be like the only fair way to kind of run the playoffs because you have to give credit to the teams that have 
done well and deserve their guaranteed spot, but you also have to consider the teams that are still battling it out. So <clears throat> what the NHL is doing is for each conference, they've taken the top four seeds of each conference. So for the East, that would be the Bruins, the Lightning, the Capitals and Flyers, the top two teams in each division. Uh, and then the, the West would be the Blues, Avalanche, Knights and Stars. And so each of those teams would all make it to the first round, no matter what. They're going to be in. It's just they have to play round robin, uh, a round robin against each other. So the Blues would play the rest of the West teams. The Bruins would play the rest of the West teams to kind of figure out where they would stack up in, sort of, in terms of ranking. Mm-hmm. Now for the other teams, uh, they've been split up uh, based off of 5 through 12. So 5 would play 12. Six would play 11, seven would play 10, and eight plays nine. So the way that works out is for the East, um, obviously you have the uh, Penguins and Canadians being the Penguins being the five team that just barely missed out, and then the Canadians being the team that currently sits in 12th. And then for the eight and nine matchup, you'd have the Leafs. Uh, Panthers Islanders, I believe, is the six versus. 11 matchup I want to say and then the Rangers is the 7 uh, versus 12 uh, 7 versus 10 either way doesn't matter yeah so what that would mean is that so considering the Leafs and Blue Jackets are the most even series they would be uh, and the winner would be theoretically the lowest on the um, on the board they would have to play the first seed team out of the um, out of the round robin. So it would basically be like a one versus eight format, but it gives those teams that are just outside of the playoffs to make it into the playoffs. So they could be playing one versus nine instead of one versus two or one versus eight. Either way, uh, so like I was saying, for those would be the matchups for the East and the West. It's just Jets and Flames, the Wild versus the Canucks, the Coyotes versus the Predators, and the Blackhawks versus the Oilers. And what I was looking at with moneypuck.com is what they were saying was is some teams obviously really benefit from this because it gets them uh, it gives them a chance to get back into the playoffs. Uh, like I mean, Canadians are out of it, but technically it would give them a chance. But like the Blackhawks, Coyotes, who are kind of were kind of a bubble team, the Wild, yeah. give those bubble teams a really chance to shine. But there are other teams that would really uh, falter from this, and it really hinders their chance of making it far into the playoffs. So the Oilers, who are the current five seed in the West, went go from having a technical 93% chance of making the playoffs if the season continued because they'd probably get the third-place seed uh, in, in their division. They, likely, now yeah. have, they now have to beat the Blackhawks, who they only have about a 50-50 shot roughly against because you never know what can happen now that players are healthy and – you never know what can happen in a five-game series, right? Yes, it is five versus 12, but the Blackhawks aren't a pushover, right? So, and I think the other teams that are saying it kind of hurts is the Leafs because they were, they were looking pretty good, like they were going to make that third uh, Pacific – or third spot in the uh, Atlantic. The Penguins, yeah, the Penguins had about a 90% chance of getting in. That, kind of, that really hurts them because now they have to play the Canadians. Granted, they should beat the Canadians, but at the same time, it hurts them. I think they were saying the Flames and Hurricanes as well. But either way, the only thing that they're really discussing with this format before it goes to actually be approved is they're talking about how those 
preliminary games the, to get into the first round, uh, would the proposed amount of games would be a three-game series. But the MLB Players – not the MLB Players Association, the NHL Players Association was saying that they didn't want it to be three games that because players like uh, Carey Price for the Montreal Canadiens or uh, Patrick Kane Patrick for, the, for the Blackhawks, uh, yeah. Blackhawks are – obviously stars in this league and can easily steal a game for you, uh, steal a game or, or two for you in a tight playoff match where teams wouldn't be, some teams wouldn't be up to full form. And yeah. while it would give a chance for some good hockey at the same time, most of the time the team ranks 12th in the league shouldn't be making it into the first round of the playoffs. Right. So they're kind of talking about how, Yes, you want it to be quick. You wanted them. You want to move on to the first uh, first round and get the actual playoffs going. But at the same time, you have to consider the fact that some players have good games, some players have really bad games, and you have to give those teams a chance to bounce back from that. And I think the only way I can see them working that format in is I think five game series is what they're going to try to go to. I think that's what the NHLPA is uh, trying to work towards, and I think. I think within the next week we should get an answer as to whether or not this will be con- a confirmed playoff format. I think. Um, yeah. I just think it's very. I think it's int- uh, very interesting how it all works out. It's very complex, but at the same time, it makes it so everything is realistically the as fair as it can be. Uh, what are your kind of thoughts on this? Before I kind of get into my whole opinion, I honestly, it's interesting because the 2014 playoff. It yes, it allows for those teams to yes make it. But I'm a Blackhawks fan personally. The Blackhawks don't deserve to be in the playoffs. If you deserve the team that's like the teams that deserve to be in the playoffs are the 16 teams right now. From one to 16, those are the teams because they worked hard, they put in effort, they won games, they deserve to be in there. Now I'm not saying the Oilers aren't going to like crush the Blackhawks, just Blackhawks, Blackhawks go home before the playoffs even start. That could totally happen. But what if the Blackhawks have a really good stretch of three games? They get into the second. Those Oilers fans who are really pushing that this year could be their year based on the amazing season that Comic David, Leon Dreisaitl, and other players are having, they're now going home because Patrick Kane just came out of nowhere and Jonathan Taze, like, you know, whatever it is. So it allows for, yes, those bottom theater teams to do well, but it kind of takes away from the point of the playoffs. The point of the playoffs is to have the best of the best in the playoffs. So I'm kind of eerie about the whole thing, like even being a Blackhawks fan, that yes, the Blackhawks are in the playoffs, but – for me, the teams that are 1-16 to 16 deserve to be in the playoffs, and that's kind of my overall thought about this. I like the way that they formatted it if it does go forward with the 2014 playoff, um, the way that you kind of have the four teams. Now, what's interesting as well, like you said, is that with this round robin, whoever ranks first, like just because right now the Bruins are ranked first and the Blues are ranked first, but the Knights could go 3-0 and out, or the Stars could go 3-0, and out, and then now they're that number one ranked team, or let's say the Lightning go. They're 3-0, so now they're going to play potentially the Leafs. And that could be a tough match for the Leafs, or it could be good, you know, whatever. But it's really hard from my from my aspect is that you can't really prepare for one team. Like, usually when you're playing in a playoff series, you know, you roughly know who you're going to play. You're going to prepare roughly for two teams. But now it's like you're prepping for four teams because you really don't know who you're playing for in that first – like, after the, um, the teams are decided, like, after the – for sort of first mini round and then the playoffs actually begin. But that first actual round is that you're not really sure who you're playing. So it, you're almost prepping for now four teams, which can be a lot harder for coaches and for players. Those, that's my thoughts on it. And now yeah. I'd love to get yours as well on it. 
Yeah, I think I think like you were saying, it would be a bit tougher for teams to kind of prepare uh, once the playoffs begin because obviously, like you said, you're preparing for certain teams. You know what to kind of expect going forward. But with this, it kind of adds uh, an element of different uh, – it just – you have to leave it up to whatever happens, happens, right? So the yeah. Leafs could be play – say the Leafs – say the Leafs beat the Jackets and move on to the first round, they could be playing the Bruins again in the first round, and we all know how that goes. Uh, hopefully that changes, obviously. But, yeah. uh, or the Leafs could be playing the Flyers, which they could go 3-0 and on a heater, but then I think the Leafs would rather have that matchup versus the Flyers rather than the Bruins, right? So Yeah, it's definitely. Just, it's, it's interesting how it's kind of set up. I think it's the best way to set it up. Uh, I think the Leafs, it's going to be an interesting series for the Leafs as a Leafs fan because, yes, now that we don't have to play – we originally would have had to be slated to play the Lightning probably, which would have been a tough matchup, especially with everything going on. They'd have Victor Hedman back. Uh, they'd have uh, Stamkos back. They'd ha- be a lot healthier of a team. But the problem with now, we would have to play the Blue Jackets, which, yes, the Blue Jackets are the technically worst team, and they have been like drop slowly dropping out of the standings, and they've been faltering. But this season, they have had a multitude of injuries, and now that we've had a two month two months break, a lot of yeah. those injuries would have been healed by now. Yes, mm-hmm. the Leafs would have a lot of injuries as well that would be healed. Jake Muzzin would be back to full health. Ilya McCabe would be back to full health. But at the same time, those Blue Jackets are a very fast team, and they can easily steal a game or two. And you saw what they did to the Capitals last. Uh, sorry. You saw what they did to the Lightning last year, and they can be a mm-hmm. scary team when they want to be, right? So I think the Leafs, yes, they don't have to play the Lightning now, but we have a, much, we have a very tough matchup as well in the, in the Columbus Blue Jackets because they are a very fast team. They're a very energetic team. They play the Leafs hard every time, and although the Leafs have showed signs of improvement, and I think they will come out with a bit of fire uh, once the season actually does resume, I think that the Blue Jackets are going to be a tough matchup for the Leafs. It's going to be definitely an interesting series, no matter how many games it is. But it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how the Leafs can kind of compare to the speed of the Blue Jackets that pretty much seem to always give them a hard time. Yeah, no, I would uh, I would definitely agree with you what I said as well. Uh, but I think it's interesting with this twenty four team format. Of course, these teams that have these first round buys, and now it's like they they do get a little bit of game in between. Uh, some possible opponents, which is good because let's say later on they might play them in the Western Conference Finals. Let's say the Blues and the Knights go forward into the Western Conference Final and they already played like one game against each other. So they sort of have an idea, which is good for the teams that are, and it's good as well because one of the biggest things like that you see in other sports is that when teams have buys, they sometimes are a little rusty. Not always, but sometimes the rust can be shown. So this way, this with this team, with this kind of round robin, even though the teams have the buy, it's a good for them. It's good for them to have some, I guess you could say, exercise actually, but some movement as well for them to not be so much um, on a buy and just kind of build up some rust in their bones. But for them yeah. to stay active and to stay fit and stuff during this time, because let's say, for example, the Blue Jackets and Leafs game goes to a five to that fifth game. Now that's about a week and a half of hockey usually, week and a half to two weeks of playoff hockey as well. So during that time, you want to be stay in shape, stay in shape, stay fit, you know, just kind of keep on going. So having those prelim game, prelim game going on, or the round robin, my man, it then keeps teams in shape or keeps players in shape as well, which I think is important. So that way you have good hockey when that first round comes around and then you don't have what happened where the Blue Jackets just completely come in and sweep away the uh, Lightning because the Lightning had some, uh, you know, 
whatever it was. So I think that's what's, that's an interesting aspect of it as well, I think. Alrighty, that wraps up our NHL discussion regarding what, uh, what would potentially look like, what a 2014 playoff would mean for the NHL and some potential lineups, or potential matchups as well. Alrighty, moving on over into our last topic of the day. Now it's some sad news, of course, in the NBA, as many people have seen. But Jerry Sloan, the former Utah Jazz coach who coached for 23 seasons from 1988 to 2011, has sadly passed away. Some career accolades for Jerry, uh, Jerry Sloan. He was the fourth most in wins amongst NBA coaches. He had 1,223 wins. He had 20 trips to the NBA playoffs, two trips to the NBA finals, a regular season record of 1,127. Um, 682, and of course, a 96, uh, 96 wins and 100 losses in the playoffs over 23 seasons. This is obviously a very sad day for a lot of Utah Jazz players and fans as well. But I think anyone in the NBA is sad because this is a le- this is a legendary coach um, who sadly died at 78. And I think it's really unfortunate what's happening. Right, like obviously we've now lost Kobe and now Jerry Sloan. So it's kind of it's very sad to see these legends go at such a young age. You would say. Like, it's, it's very unfortunate. Yeah. And I know for a fact that, uh, sorry to be come out, that Jerry Sloan, uh, his passing isn't related to COVID-19 or anything like that. He'd been dealing with, I think it was Parkinson's for a while. So it wasn't, it wasn't something that had come uh, as a result of this pandemic. It's not like Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell had some sort of effect on that, whatever. Right. Um, but you got to remember, this is, Jerry Sloan easily – is one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. If you look at some of the guys he's coached, if you look at his record, obviously, 1,127 wins and 682 losses. That's a very impressive record. I don't even know what the win percentage would be on that. uh, Two trips to the finals, 20 NBA, uh, uh, 20 trips to the playoffs. He has a ridiculous uh, accolade set. And you think of some of the incredible players he's coached over the years too. Not only you got like, Ricky Rubio and uh, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert as he's had in the past few seasons, but he's also coached John Stockton, Carl Malone, uh, Jeff Hornacek. He, he was around when the Bulls were, he was, co- he was the coach of the Jazz when the Michael Jordan Bulls were rolling into town and they were yeah. competing year after year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he taught Carl, he coached Carl Malone for many years. He coached John Stockton for many years. He, he has coached many Hall of Fame caliber players and I think to, for the Utah Jazz, this is a, obviously a huge loss. And as well for the NBA community, he, like I said, fourth most wins in, uh, among NBA coaches. He's easily one of the top coaches of all time and has coached some of the most incredible players. And the fact that he was the coach of the same team for, what, 23 seasons? That's yeah. absolutely absurd for a coach to, be a, uh, uh, to stay with the team for that long. And it just shows how good of a coach he was in my opinion no yeah I, I would definitely agree for and I think with any sport as well but usually a coach lasts amongst a most maybe five years five to seven years and then usually it's time for a new change like a perfect example would be of course Dwayne Casey Dwayne Casey uh really helped the Raptors out I think over his uh five like his five or six years that he was there um or like plus more and I think it's like it gets to a certain point where you have to change, but for Jerry Sloan, he was winning year after year. He was 20 trips to the playoffs. So trying to think about that in 23 seasons, they went to the playoffs 20 times. That's, that's, that's impressive. If you think about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's only really three is. years where they missed the playoffs. That means they, they didn't, they didn't have enough wins and usually enough wins is probably around 50 or more. Let's say 55 or more. 
So that's at least in 20 seasons, he had 55 plus wins or 50 plus wins in a season. Yeah. Could, it all depends on the year that you play in and stuff, depending on how good the Bulls. Obviously, you probably need a lot more wins to get into the playoffs. But still, that is, like you said, is what, 1,127 wins. So I did some quick math. That's around a 62 percentage win, uh, 0.62 uh, win percentage, which is above 50%. That's insane for an NBA coach to have that, um, yeah. that kind of record, I think. Or like yeah. that kind and, of win percentage as well. So, And we were talking about it before the show. He was so recognizable as the as the face of the Utah Jazz that me and Sam like before hearing of his passing we thought he was still the coach of the Jazz right like we we had known he was such an iconic figure for the Utah Jazz and as their coach we had thought he was still coaching with them because his effect has had such a great impact on that team and I mean it it is it's obviously sad to see him go and I think the MLB not not the MLB the NBA community will be obviously saddened by this and yeah easily one of the best coaches of all time in my opinion oh definitely I think in my mind he's probably up there along with Greg Popovich and as well uh Phil Jackson as well I think or like that's kind of like the top to be yeah the top three in regards to um like obviously fourth most in wins but just for that with everything that like you don't have to look at the career accolades because i know a lot of times when we these people pass away and like we look to kobe as well you look at the accolades but you have to look past the accolades you have to look at think about all those players that he coached think about the players that the the uh the, the players that he made them into be like obviously a lot of the players like uh, john stockton carl malone come came in as young guns and then he coached them to become yes they became hall of fame players but you have to have a hall of fame coach to become a hall of fame player in my mind that's a, oh, that's yeah. the way it works. Sure. So when For you have sure. Jerry Sloan as your head coach and the, with the, the the success that he had, I think a lot of those times he was grooming those players into become helped them along. I think it was a fifty fifty journey along with a player to become a Hall of Fame player. Um, so I think it's it's a huge loss for the NBA community and for the Utah Jazz organization as well. And I think um, there's probably going to be a big ceremony as well. A lot of Famous players will probably, a lot of Utah Jazz players, a lot of Utah Jazz members will be there along with a lot of the NBA community members as well. All right, moving on over into some more news in the regarding the NBA. The Brooklyn Nets are potentially looking to add a third star next season. That's it. If obviously, Kyrie is there and Kevin Durant would be uh, joining again next or healthy again next year. And they've apparently set their sights on Bradley Beal. What are your thoughts on this as a potential third star and how well would he mold with Kyrie and Kevin Durant? Like, think about personalities, think about chemistry. How well would he mold there? And what are your thoughts on this whole uh, potential, uh, these uh, uh, reports coming out? It's a very interesting, um, uh, it's a very interesting target for the Nets to kind of be looking at. Because I know a lot of teams have talked about adding a Bradley Beal, and a lot of teams would uh, greatly improve with the help of a Bradley Beal, because he is an all-star player. He is a great shooter, a great scorer, and I think, alongside Kyrie Irving and KD, you now have a good one, two, three right there. And Kyrie at the point, Bradley Beal at the shoot at the two and Kevin Durant, small forward, power forward, center, whatever you need him to play. Um, But it's an interesting move because earlier on, I think it was, uh, yeah, uh, looking at an article here, it said around March, he, Bradley Beal stated the fact that he wants to be with the Washington Wizards for a long time. He was saying how he admired, Players like Kobe, Dirk, Dwayne Wade, who, while Dwayne Wade did play for some other teams, he remained with one team for most of his career. He stayed loyal to one team uh, for most of his career. And I think that's what Bradley Beal wants to do. He wants to see him go up and he wants to see himself go down as one of the greatest Washington Wizards of all time. And 
I think you can argue that as he continues to uh, keep his playoff. Uh, I think that is a realistic, a realistic uh, goal for him to be uh, setting for himself. But there obviously have been a lot of talks about, well, will they extend his contract? Will they want to? Are they going to go full rebuild and all that sort of stuff? And obviously there's been a lot of trade talk and whatever. It's just, and it's going to be interesting to see if the uh, Brooklyn Nets do look to add a piece like Bradley Beal, they're going to have to give up something. And yes, they do have a surplus off the bench. They have uh, a very good bench compared to a lot of the rest of the league. Again, they do have Kevin Durant. Uh, they're going to be getting Kevin Durant back next year, which is a very key point, I think, as well. Um, but it's going to be – I don't know what they would have to give up for a Bradley Beal-type player because that is a very good star. And uh, the, Brook, uh, the Washington Wizards are in a state of rebuilding right now. And I think they are going to be looking for not only – first round draft picks, but probably a good young player. And as much as I hate to say it, I think if the Brooklyn Nets are going to want to get Bradley Beal, if they are serious about getting him, I think a reasonable price point for Bradley Beal would have to be a combo of uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, who, uh, well, he is a free agent after the season, but he would be, I don't know, he has two years left on his contract. So um, going into... Uh, he would be able to play uh, the last year of his contract as a Washington Wizard. But I think it would cost Spencer Dinwiddie and Jared Allen, I think. Jared Allen is one of the young up-and-coming centers of this league, and I think that if the Washington Wizards are going to get any young gun off of the Brooklyn Nets team, it might have to be Dinwiddie, it might have to be Jared Allen, it might have to even be Karis LeVert that goes, because those three players are obviously young, they're entering their prime, They have a lot of potential, and I think giving up one or two of them plus some draft picks would be a realistic price for the Washington Wizards because they have they want they're rebuilding right now. They want a lot for their All Star, and I think if they can keep him, I think they want to. But I think it's going to be tough for them to keep him. So they're going to want a lot in return, and I think it's going to have to be future and it's future assets, as in draft picks, as well as a star who could be a star for them two years down the line, like a Jared Allen or a Dinwiddie or a Karis LeVert. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think for the Brooklyn Nets and, of course, the Washington Wizards to reach a deal if they wanted to get Bradley Beal, they would probably have to give up two young stars, maybe a draft pick or two. Like, it's either going to have to be two players and a first-round pick or two first-round picks and a draft of player. But the thing with draft – like, with the thing with, um, of course, draft picks as well is that – Yes, you might have a first-round draft pick. Yes, you might pick up a player, but then you pick up a rookie, then you get to develop him. He might, like not saying he might be a bust, but when you, have, when you get players, potential players, or like actual players, even if they're rookies, that player is like, that's actually there. Like you know who that player is. You can see tape on them. You can see stats. So you can do some research. And I think for them to be realistic looking, I think, like you said as well, it's probably going to be a first-round draft pick or two as well, true draft picks. And then Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, or another player as well, I think is realistic. And I think for the Brooklyn Nets to have that third big star, Bradley Beal, would add a lot and would, I think, solidify potentially for them to be a serious team. Because right now, a lot of time, a lot of things that I'm looking at right now is, okay, yes, they have Kevin Durant. Yes, they have um, Kyrie Irving, But those are only two stars. And, yes, it sort of worked. But even if you look at all the great teams, like even close to the most recent you have, the Golden State Warriors or the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers of 2016, they had Kyrie Irving, they had um, Kevin Love, and they had LeBron James. That's a big three right there. You need at least three big stars um, to have. So 
adding Bradley Beal would, I think, solidify them as a serious potential team and for them to create a lot of noise as well in the NBA, I think. Yeah, I think it would really give them a, an extra prowess, but I would have a few concerns with that team if they do go through with a trade because if they do uh, have if they do have to give up two of their younger stars, I think that would uh, put a bit of a, a question mark around their bench situation. I think um, that would because uh, obviously three men don't make a team. Um, but also, um, not only is we've talked about this before when the original decisions went down, but Katie and Kyrie are obviously two very Type A personality players, and Bradley Beal, while he is a very like he has been playing on the Wizards, he is a very, I'd say a bit of a bit more of a selfish player, where he wants to score a lot more. He can put up those points while he has been playing on the Wizards, obviously, but. I think he would be wanting a certain number of touches a game. And I don't know if he'd get that with the shared amount of time with Kyrie and KD. Obviously he is more of a player that would be good in a duo with John Wall, like he has been. Um, and my other concern with that is I don't know, obviously Bradley Beal has been playing with the wizards and he knows what he's doing. Obviously Kyrie Irving has had his injury struggles, but he's doing, he did okay for what this season, for the amount of, time that he played this season but my one question mark still is going to be the health of Kevin Durant because it's already Definitely. been talked about that once the once the season returns he won't be in no matter what uh but I think it's going to be interesting to see if he can play next year and if he can be playing up to his level of cal- uh the caliber of play that we are used to seeing him at because Kevin Durant is was a very very good player before this injury happened and he's been out for a while we don't know if he's going to be able to be uh be an effective player after this ankle injury heals and we don't know if it's gonna affect him because those types of injuries if you haven't been playing basketball for say a year and a half going into a season uh coming off of a season where you didn't play at all who knows if he'll have the same prowess that he did before his injury right he'll have aged a lot more he'll have uh he won't have played he wouldn't have taken as many shots for that long uh that amount of time he probably wouldn't be as athletic as he once was and I think that is another factor we have to consider when considering the Brooklyn Nets going into next season because we don't know what Kevin Durant can be next year. We He could return to his stardom or he could be one of the most overpaid players in the NBA because uh, he's not going to come back uh, to full strength right away. He's not going to be playing 40 minutes a night. He's going to be playing very uh, – he's going to be on a very short leash to start off. And I don't know if with that short leash, if he'll be able to perform to what the Brooklyn Nets are looking for to make a contending run in the coming seasons. What are your thoughts on that? No, I would uh, definitely agree. And the biggest thing with when you have these major, uh, I think it was an I want to say ACL as well, potentially, um, or whatever these major injuries is that the player that returns, we saw this with Anthony Davis is that it takes time for them to, they won't are this, they aren't the same player. They might, they might be a different player. They're going to have to rehabilitate and stuff. And they're going to have to start to, do things on it like we've seen a little a few videos here and there recently a few weeks ago where he was uh he was practicing like under this was I mean probably two months ago I mean before the whole thing but this was a, a while ago when he was practicing and we did see some uh slight action with him but I think the biggest thing is that he has to perform well like he has to be at least averaging 20 25 points a night for them to be worth because the Brooklyn Nets right now are paying an absurd, absurd amount of money the biggest thing as well that I was even like, well, obviously he signed with Brooklyn for a reason because KD was there, but I mean, it was Kyrie was there, but I think you're totally right. You have Kyrie and KD who are two type A personality guys 
and who probably the first and second scoring option. So with Bradley Beal coming in as the third scoring option, he's probably only not going to get a lot of touches in the game. He's not going to get as many as he would in Washington. So the question is, does he want to stay in Washington, play out his career, like maybe a few more years, maybe find, go somewhere else, or does he just stay there, be an average, sub-average player, you know, be as good as it, be as, be a good Washington Wizards, uh, Wizards organizational player, maybe gets the jersey retired, or does he go to the Brooklyn Nets or another team potentially and become a sec, a third scoring option? But at least for, in my eyes, he wants to be at least probably the second or second scoring option, maybe even first as well. What, um, yeah. And I think that's just the way that you have to look at it as Bradley Beal and the Brooklyn Nets as well as a potential yeah, and I mean, for, for the deal to go through. Yeah, he has a lot of options right now, and I think a lot of teams could benefit from the use of a Bradley Beal, but I think the Wizards, no matter what, are going to be looking for a very high price for him, and I think it's going to be tough to see if the Wizards can get a deal done because I think they would be asking too much for Bradley Beal. But I think there's definitely interest for Bradley Beal, the Brooklyn Nets being, I think, the most of it right now. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see what the Wizards decide to do with Bradley Beal going forward, if they decide to give him an extension that he's been looking for, or if they decide to move on from him and kind of bring in the younger uh, generation as they start to rebuild. Definitely, I would agree with that. Alrighty, that wraps up our NBA discussion regarding uh, remembering Jerry Sloan, the legendary Utah Jazz coach who has unfortunately passed away at the age of 78, and the Brooklyn Nets potentially looking to add a third star, and could Bradley Beal be part of that uh, Brooklyn Nets team? This has been episode 36 of the On The Rise podcast with your host, Sam and Evan. Be sure to check out our website, ontherisepodcast.ca, and Instagram, at Rise Podcast. We'd like to give thanks to all Midtown Radio listeners. Make sure to tune in next week for more great sports content.